Hey, this is the Unpopular Populist. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Left Populist, and also like my Facebook page at the Unpopular Populist. I'll be posting the podcast on there, and then I'll also have some articles on there for some discussion. Um, I want there to be dialogue because nowadays I feel like there's not enough of that on both sides of the aisle. So whether you identify as liberal or conservative or progressive, libertarian, please like, share, subscribe, and spread the word to your friends. According to Pew Research, 84% of Americans say that the economy was a very important issue that they voted based on in the 2016 election. Jobs and trade was also a big issue and is one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton lost. So let's take a look at these trade deals, what jobs were left in the wake of these trade deals, and how we can change things for the average worker. So before I talk about the economy and jobs, I want to let you guys know about the foundation of where those where our current state of affairs came from. And that came with some of the trade agreements that we had. And the first trade agreement was the North American Free Trade Agreement. And this was signed by Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And it created a trading block for North America. And this was signed by Bill Clinton in 1994. And as an expansion of that, we also had CAFTA, which was the Central America Free Trade Agreement. And this included nations like Guatemala, Salvador, Costa Rica, Nicaragua. And this was signed in 2004 by President Bush. And as a result of those two things, since 2001, 60,000 factories in America have been shut down. Is that all attributed to trade? No, but a lot of it is. Some of it does have to do with technology and automation, but most of it has to do with those horrible trade deals that we had. And it's because we're having this giant race to the bottom. And even our wages are going down as a result. I mean, for example, during the 2016 election, TPP was another trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that was written by corporate America and the pharmaceutical industry and Wall Street. And they're trying to drive down wages and increase their profits. And the TPP was a hot issue in the 2016 election. I mean, you had Obama pushing the TPP, saying it was great. You had Hillary Clinton also pushing the TPP so much that she called it the gold standard of trade deals. And she pushed it 45 times all over the world as Secretary of State. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but in the primaries, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were going at it a lot about these trade deals. And that's because Bernie was against these trade deals like NAFTA and CAFTA because he knew it would affect American workers and only look out for corporate interests. But no, Hillary still decided to push the TPP. And as a result, she... Um, end up losing up against Trump because Trump was also a um, opponent of the TPP and he 
constantly grilled on her. I remember a debate that he would not let her get off these trade deals. And when you're in middle America, where most of these factory jobs are, and you live in a town where only those factory jobs are available, and it gets shipped over to China, over to Mexico, well... You're not going to vote for the person who signed those deals in the first place, which were the Clintons. And you're going to vote for the anti-establishment guy like Trump because you think he's looking out for the middleman. But ever since then, ever since the election, he he's flipped on the issue. He he said he's renegotiating NAFTA. But now guess what? He's putting those horrible TPP trade provisions into NAFTA now. And this is actually from the from the nation. It says investors, however, will still have the ability under the controversial investor state dispute settlement, ISDS system, a secret extrajudicial court that gives corporations monetary awards for lost profits due to changes in law that run counter to trade agreements. While the document states that ISDS would have to be more transparent and consistent with U.S. legal principles and practice, it still exists, meaning corporations could still functionally overturn sovereign laws outside of the court system and win billions of damages when governments try to write rules in the public interest. Wow, that is crazy. So just to break this down for you, what he is, what the provision that he's putting into the TPP, it sets up an international board so corporations can sue governments that mess with their bottom line. So if you're a country with a regular, with an environmental regulation that says, hey, you can't pour this toxic item into our water, into our river system. And because you'll get fined for it. Well, they can go to this extrajudicial court system, the corporation, and sue that government for messing with their bottom line. That is giving corporations complete sovereignty and giving them power over other uh, governments. That is ridiculous. So, like I said, Trump, he railed against TPP. And he railed against Hillary Clinton uh, on this issue. And ever since he's gotten elected, he's renegotiating NAFTA and putting these horrible provisions back into it. So this will definitely increase the amount of manufacturing jobs that we have left overseas. And like I said, it's a race to the bottom. We shouldn't have Americans competing against people in Vietnam who make 50 cents an hour for a minimum wage because we have a gig economy now and we don't have the jobs that we should be having. And even though we've been in this recovery since the Great Recession in 2008 and we have made significant progress since then, we are losing hundreds of thousands of jobs a month um, under that Great Recession and Obama did bring us out of that recession. Um, he didn't go far enough to get us out of there. And we had job growth, but wages have been stagnant. And this is a recurring theme. I mean, just last month, we had a report that the U.S. economy created 313,000 jobs, but yet wage growth is still slowing down. And 
Most Americans believe that a rising tide should lift all boats, that as the economy expands, everybody should reap the rewards. And for two and a half decades, beginning in the late 1940s, this is how our economy worked. Over this period, the pay of typical workers rose in tandem with productivity, how much workers produced per hour. So in other words, as the economy became more efficient and expanded, everyday Americans benefited through better pay. But in the 1970s, that began to change. And this is according to the Economic Policy Institute. From 1973 to 2016, net productivity rose 73.7% while the hourly pay for typical workers essentially stagnated, increasing only 12.5% over 43 years, adjusting for inflation. This means that although Americans are working more productively than ever, the fruits of their labors have primarily accrued to those at the top and to corporate profits, especially in recent years. Wow. Okay. Now, I know that's crazy <laughs> and I know that makes sense because a lot of us are um, struggling to get by on the wages that we're making now. But the reason why it happened is because the income, wages and wealth generated over the last four decades have failed to trickle down to the vast majority of Americans. And this is because policy choices are made on behalf of those with the most income, with the most wealth and the most power. So in essence, rising equality has prevented potential pay growth from translating into actual pay growth for most workers. And the result of that has been wage stagnation. And it has also been from the result of the decline of unions in America. Now, we used to have a huge amount of unions in the U.S., but after Reagan decided to bust up this, decided that it was OK to bust up unions, more businesses looked at that and thought they can bust up unions as well. And unions were an organization of workers that formed to protect their rights and interests. So. Um, for example, one thing that they do is collective bargaining. So. In that whole union, a group of workers will decide that, hey, we want to be paid this much. If not, we're going to go on strike. Hey, if you don't give us these benefits, we're going to go on strike and we won't work for you anymore. And that used to be a very big thing in the U.S. And after Reagan decided to bust up that, um, businesses thought it was OK to bust up unions as well and also um, established right to work laws, which means that even in the event of a strike, you can work, but for lower wages and wait, unions work really well. And the most recent case we actually have is the teacher strike that happened in West Virginia. And it was a nine day statewide education strike. And this included defeating expansion of charter schools, killing a proposal to eliminate seniority, um, and cutting a paycheck protection, um, protection bill. And it also um, was to fight for a raise in pay and fix their health insurance costs. So when these nine teachers created a crisis in West Virginia that these kids were out of school and they weren't getting their education, the state did everything they can to try and meet those demands of, of teachers. And I feel like we need to have a general strike like that in America. 
Imagine if every worker said that, hey, we're not going to work until we get better wages. Hey, we're not going to work until we get um, Medicare for all. Hey, we're not going to work until we get paid family leave. You know that we're one of three countries that don't offer paid family leave to brand new parents. We're down there with Papua New Guinea. And we're if you talk about first world developed nations, we're the only country that doesn't have paid family leave. So I think that's something that we need to fight for and have a general strike for. And Unfortunately, it seems like we're going in the opposite direction. It seems like we're moving more towards the gig economy. And as a part-time member of the gig economy, I can tell you it is not a rosy picture. <laughs> it turns out that life with no health benefits, no vacation pay, or retirement plan is not a rosy picture. And gig work has become a vehicle not only to drive down wages, but to eliminate employer-related benefits. This is health insurance, retirement pensions, and Social Security. So by undermining labor unions and promoting individualist competition amongst workers, gig work drives down wages. There's times where I'll put in a bid for an op for a gig and somebody will get it because they have a low, they they're charging a lower price than me. And this creates competition and reduces the possibility for effective working class political action. And it sucks because what's really going on is the desire of businesses to chop down wages and benefit costs while also limiting their liability to lawsuits. And this can happen when salaried employees are mistreated or there's misconduct in the workplace. So the burden of economic risk is shifted on to the workers who lose security and protections of things like Medicare and Medicaid and also social insurance programs like, you know, Social Security. And even though gig, jo gig jobs are consistent with liberal values of individualism and opportunity, it lacks the benefits and fair wages. So if I were given a choice between freelance gigs and a career opportunity, I'd definitely choose the career opportunity. And as a result of these, the way, stag the way stagnation that we're seeing and as a result of the trade deals that we're seeing as a result of no social insurance, this pre this prevents people from achieving the American dream of having a family, saving retirement, saving for retirement, or owning a house. It affects the whole economy. But there are things that we can do to improve our economy, have fair trade, and then also improve our job situation. And that is... Number one, having sensible trade deals. Fair trade is I have something that you don't. You have something that I don't. I take what I need and you take what you need. I don't believe in unfettered free trade. I believe in trade that works for middle class and working families, not just large multinational corporations. So in addition to that, I think we need a new new deal. And if you're not familiar with a new New Deal, it's a series of federal programs, public work projects, financial reforms and regulations that were created in the 1930s after the Great Depression. 
Some of these programs included the Social Security Administration, the Civil Works Administration, and the Civilian Conservation Corps. And most of these programs help farmers, they help the unemployed, they help the youth and the elderly, and also provided safeguards on the banking industry. Because if you're not familiar with the Great Depression, the reason why it happened is one, because of the banking industry, and two, crony capitalism. So we need a new New Deal. And a part of that new New Deal is to reinvent education at every level. Because there's a mismatch between skills Americans now possess and the jobs employers have and will want in the future. So we need to reinvent education at every level. The second thing is to expand the earned income tax credit, which allows individuals and families earning low to middle incomes to keep more of their money. So this is the best way to fight inequality because it gives money directly to Americans who need income while encouraging them to participate in the workforce. And the last thing that we need to do is invest in infrastructure. This is fixing our internet bandwidth, fixing our roads, our bridges, our airports, and schools, because these jobs can't be outsourced. And it will create a quarter million jobs over two, 10 years if this was done properly. And the last thing that we need to do is establish worker cooperatives. And this means one worker, one vote. So imagine if you worked and you there was no ranking where you worked at. So you had as much say as the director at your job. You would, be, you would be deciding what to produce, how to produce it, and also where to produce it. You would be part of a democratic process to decide what the company does with the profits. So, for example, let's just use this. If a, if a company decided that they wanted to go to Vietnam where they can pay a Vietnam worker 75 cents an hour compared to you where you would want $15 an hour. Well, in the worker cooperative, you can vote to not go to Vietnam and keep the job here and keep your job here for the rest of your coworkers. So that is what a co worker cooperative will do. And in addition to that, when you have things like stock buybacks to executives, that money will actually go back to the workers rather than those just those at the top. So when the, where the union bargains to get a benefit, the union has to bargain. But what sucks about a union is the employer has a vested interest to undo that, such as reducing wages. In a worker co-op, you don't have to worry about that because you are the, the employer. So you don't have to worry about losing your insurance because you're the employer. And... Just to sum it up, the ultimate goal of a union is actually a worker co-op because you're securing the wages that you need, you're getting the benefits that you need, and you're keeping the jobs where you want it to be. So I think we need to have a worker co-op to give us those high wages and give us those benefits that we need. If we can establish a general strike and then form a worker co-op around these companies that we are working at, we'll be able to increase our increase 
the chances of everybody achieving the American dream. Well, that was part nine of my 10 part series. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Next week will actually be a surprise for you guys. So um, look out for that next Wednesday. Um, Like I said, with this one, share it, subscribe, let your friends know, leave your comments on the blog. Let me know what you think. And um, I'll talk to you guys next week. Peace.